Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Welcome to another episode, everybody. Yes. Hi, listeners. Happy to be with you. We're how we're it, but it, but it, but it, but it. That's all, folks. Nope, we just started. I was trying to say <laughs> we are happy to be with you, and then I wanted to also say we uh, we hope. I can't even get it out again. We hope you are happy to be with us. Is what I wanted to say. There we go. Very good. <laughs> so our family's been watching a show together. Uh, we mentioned it before on a podcast, actually. The show. Is it called The Chosen? I think it's called The Chosen. Yeah, The Chosen. Uh, about it's about Jesus and his apostles. So far, we haven't seen the entirety of it because it hasn't all been released. But yeah, we just started season two. Mm-hmm. And if you if you haven't checked out the show, you you what you do is you get an app on your phone or on your tablet or whatever, and then we just cast it onto our TV, and we've been enjoying it. It's it's. It's well written. The storytelling kind of brings life to familiar gospel passages. Something that came to light for me recently watching is how flawed the apostles are. And initially I was like, oh, that was kind of surprising to me. And I thought, well, why is that surprising to me? It's surprising to me because I have this overly pietistic image of the apostles. You know, all the holy cards we get as kids and the stories we hear of their heroisms and such, but they had to grow into that. They had to grow into holiness. And I've really appreciated seeing the way these authors of this chosen series are portraying the immaturity of the apostles and that Jesus is not surprised by it. Mm-hmm. And that Jesus is meeting them right there and walking with them right there. And it's like, of course, that's how he does it with all of us. Mm-hmm. And he had to do it with them too. Yeah. You know, you just hear about the apostles growing up and you think they were kind of instantly saints or something. But I'm getting a picture, and I think it's a realistic one and a, a very appropriate one, of how Jesus was happy to journey. I'm Even as I say it, I, I've just felt a little lump coming in my throat because mm. somewhere in me, I was wrongly formed to think Jesus is not happy to journey with me in my growth, that he wants me to be, he wanted me to be perfect 10 years ago and I screwed it up so badly, he's still pissed off at me. Oh. But yeah, it's, 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 I think it's absolutely correct that the way Jesus is being portrayed here in being happy to journey with them through their foibles to teach them. The, the, you know, the, the line in Scripture that comes to mind is they were like sheep without a shepherd. They didn't know where to go or what to do. They needed help. We all do. Yeah. I desperately need my Maker to tell me who I am and to guide me into real freedom and to guide me into becoming the man I'm meant to be. And I've I've been catching glimpses of that in the way the author of the series has Jesus journeying with the apostles in their broken humanity. And I, I yeah, it's been a blessing to That's me. That's a good lesson for all of us. Yeah, I'm it is. I'm glad you talked about that. And um, I'm also wondering if you have any updates from the Theology of the Body Institute. Yeah, work. we have some things coming up that people should be aware of. We have some online and in-person courses this summer, 2021. We have Catholic Sexual Ethics 
coming up in July in person. You can check out the link in the show notes to learn more about that. We have Theology of the Body Level 1 online coming up in July. You can check out the link below to learn more about that. And if you've already taken TOB Level 1 and you are interested in taking what we are now calling Theology of the Body in the New Evangelization. We've given it a new title. It used to be Theology of the Body 3. Let's call it the course formerly known as TOB 3. <laughs> That's right. The class formerly known as TOB 3. We used to have level 1 and level 2 as prerequisites, but we, we came to realize you don't really need to have taken level 2 to take the Theology of the Body in the New Evangelization. This will be an in-person course, first week of August. Check out the link below. And what it is, this is one of my favorite courses to teach. It is a guided tour of the Catechism uh, from beginning to end. We also look at John Paul II's letter on the new millennium, his pastoral plan, Novo Millennio Inuente, uh, that really outlines what the new evangelization is all about. We look at that first, and then we put on our TOB glasses, and we go through the four pillars of the Catechism, and seeing the faith come alive in my students is one of the absolute highlights of doing what I do, and it really does come alive, especially in this course. So I'm excited about teaching that this summer, and I only get to teach that one every couple of years. So here it comes. If you're interested, check out the link. Do we have a question from a patron? We do indeed. As usual, we go to our first question from a patron. We're so grateful. Does this person anonymous or does... It is an anonymous question. I'll just say something too. If you're a patron, please do use your special link to submit questions um, because we're always looking to know how we can serve our patrons. Um, so grateful to our patrons, yeah. all you who give us this monthly support to enable us to do what we do. We can't do it without you. There's ongoing formation for our patrons that is exclusive to the patron community. So if you've been blessed by what we do, you want to learn more and help us out, we'd be so grateful if you check out that link in the show notes. Here's our question. Thank you for your beautiful ministry. You are welcome. My parents divorced when I was a teenager. I'm still surrendering those wounds to Jesus. In my brokenness, I realize how desperately I'd like to have an earthly marriage model to look up to. I'm thankful to both of you for sharing and modeling that for me. Wendy, Christopher makes it sound as if it's so natural for you, even in your friendship, to love him unconditionally. That makes me wonder how you do it. Mm. How do you handle when his words or actions hurt you? Do you struggle too? Because I'm struggling. My mother's advice is full of negativity towards men. I guess I'm just yearning for some healthy motherly advice. Wow, this sounds like a question that I'm not going to answer first. <laughs> <laughs> it's Wendy's turn. I like it. And I'm very eager to hear what you have to say. Well, actually, let me say something. Can I say something of first? Of course. On your behalf, Wendy, I just want to say to the world, and it sounds strange to say on your behalf, because I'm about to talk about your faults. <laughs> Go right ahead. But you, you are, you are, you would be the first to acknowledge that you struggle, that you are wounded like the rest of us. I would also say 
you have had a particular grace in your life uh, that has not made you perfect, but has has given you a capacity to love people well. Not that you do it perfectly, um, but I, I, I see both, right? Every human being is wheat and weeds growing together. And the what particularly struck me about that question was the negativity in her mother's advice, which we all know comes from having been wounded by men. If she's being negative towards men, she's had negative experiences with men, and that is understandable. Uh, but it doesn't justify an overall negativity towards men. Yeah. But anyway, so, forgive me for interrupting. When I was I was giving you the floor, and I was excited to give you the floor. I was excited to sit back and let you answer the question, and then I jumped in. For whatever reason, my love. Yes. I feel better speaking after you have spoken. I do not have a great desire to be the first one to talk. So you maybe read me correctly I, by going okay, ahead well, and saying something. Okay, well, that makes me something. feel a little better. <laughs> because, you know, those of you who listen to our podcast regularly know that I almost never answer a question first. I pose the question, you talk, and then I might right. comment. And there's a reason for that. This is the Ask Christopher West podcast. But you know, oh, come Wendy on, hold West. on, hold on, hold on. You know, <laughs> you know from all the mail we get that people especially love your answers. Okay. So don't don't forget about <laughs> Don't just don't put it. It should be. We've already talked about this, too, on, on previous podcasts, that this really should be the Ask Christopher and Wendy West podcast. But if we change the title now, then we lose our place in the ratings or whatever <laughs> so it's fine with me truly because i do need time to think about things and um don't feel like you know just as gifted a speaker and especially answering questions it has always blessed me to hear you answer questions and how you can kind of just feel the heart of the issue that's coming out in a question and respond to it so that is wonderful some of the things that are just striking me about this question is is first of all the the pain of the divorce of your parents, which I just um, really want to join you in lifting up your heart to the Lord. It's it is an ongoing thing, as you said, still surrendering those wounds to Jesus and inviting His light into your heart and His mercy into your view of each of your parents. Um, sometimes things that happen in our lives can seem like a puzzle that we haven't been able to solve, uh, a question we haven't been able to answer, and, and how difficult that can be sometimes. And I lift you up in that situation of your history and your family and how, how much pain there is connected to the failings of your parents, um, just to live a healthy marriage for your benefit. Um, and, you know, I'm grateful the Lord has allowed our podcast and our relationship to be a sign of hope for you, because I think that's what it is. I think it is a sign of hope. It, clearly, as Christopher said, we're not perfect, but um, there's been a lot of grace at work in both of our lives, and we don't have any corner on grace. God's grace mm. is so abundant and so available. And just as you were talking earlier about the the apostles in the chosen story, yeah. how they come to Jesus, they're convinced, they're giving up everything, they're following him, but 
they still make a lot of mistakes yeah. and misunderstand things and um, just act out of their human pain. And, uh, you know, they're, they're real human beings. And so are all of us. So there's a question here. How do you handle when Christopher's words or actions hurt you? I think it's interesting that you instinctively know that. Maybe we've talked about that enough on the podcast that you know that um, Christopher's words and actions hurt me sometimes. Yeah, there was that one time. And when was that? Back in 1997? Was that when it was? <laughs> Another thing that we don't maybe talk about as oh, often God, is how my, <laughs> how my words and actions hurt Christopher. Yes, yes. There was and... that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And to be hurt by something is not necessarily a sign that the other person's actions were wrong. The hurting sometimes is happening inside us because of something we expected or hoped for that the other had no way of mm -hmm. knowing or anticipating. So, um, you know, or we might be projecting something on the other from our own upbringing and wounds we got from our parents right. or siblings exactly. or exactly. So. You know, obviously that is part of our story. And there's something that I realized very early in my relationship with Christopher, which was the sense in which he is a beautiful gift to me. And I'm a beautiful gift to him. That was such a, a foundation of our relationship that has helped me through so many times of struggle or confusion in the nitty gritties of our mm -hmm. relationship that being just a foundational truth and i'll just say we're a married couple so in a particular way you are a gift to me and i'm a gift to you but there's also that truth in male and female relating in general and you it sounds like you may not be a married person um, and so I, I want to say that because I recognize Christopher as a gift to me in a particular way, doesn't mean there's not a lesson for all of us in understanding a relationship with anybody who causes us pain or confusion that in some way the Lord's unique light is shining through this person. And sometimes so many things have covered over that light that is very hard even to recognize it, but it's, it is there. And that has been such a strength for me in the particulars of our story is recognizing and and god has given me just ways of seeing that whether it's the you know the the face of my husband to look in his eyes to know there's a unique person in front of me mm. who whose deepest desire is to love and be loved and I'm called to intimately relate with him on that journey. That that gives me just an orientation in our relationship and in dealing with all kinds of things that are challenging. When a person's advice is full of negativity towards men, I think that person you don't need to go to for advice. Yeah. Because how could that be from the Lord? How could the Lord be negative toward men? God who made men. How could the Lord be negative toward women? God who right. made women. That is not going to be the advice that directs us to what the Lord has for us. Can I add something there? Yeah. That negativity, as I was saying earlier, we know comes from being wounded by men. And I think the injustice here is that we end up defining 
one man in particular or all men in general based on wounds we've received from them, based on uh, their, their own brokenness. And when we define the person's humanity based on that, huma- that person's human brokenness, we're doing a disservice. We're really shutting down the possibility of redemption. It's something that, that has been a bedrock principle in our relationship is knowing that we're broken and knowing that Christ came into the world to heal us and restore us to the purity of our origins, as the Catechism says. You know, this talk in the culture about toxic masculinity, John Paul II would describe that description of masculinity as the interpretation of suspicion, Mm. where you lock someone into his brokenness, right? And we can also speak of toxic femininity. We, we hurt one another in our brokenness. That is true. And we need to reckon with those wounds. We need to open those wounds to healing. We need to forgive those who've wounded us to get over that bitterness. And that is all a work of grace. And it takes time. It's not easy. But one of the greatest injustices would be to define humanity or define specific people based on their brokenness. Uh, this line from World Youth Day in 2002 has become one of the most quoted lines of John Paul II, and he says, you are not defined by your weaknesses. You are not defined by your sins. You are not defined by your broken humanity. You are defined by the Father's love for you and by the capacity to become a true image of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's a paraphrase, but it's the general sense of what John Paul II said at World Youth Day in 2002. And I think that's critical in human relationships. When do you have hurt me? Um, and I know I have hurt you, but you are not defined by the way you've hurt me. You hurt me because you're a broken human being like anybody else, and I've hurt you because I'm a broken human being like anybody else. But you are not defined by your broken humanity, and you have I know that you give that to me as well, that you know that I am not defined by my broken humanity. And so we can look at one another knowing we've hurt one another, and it we've really hurt one another, and when you hurt, you hurt. <laughs> and that hurt comes from broken humanity. But I would say the underlying thing that has allowed us to work through that and not just become negative or cynical is the real hope of redemption. And and hope of redemption, I mean, not only as a hope for the resurrection at the end of time, but I mean what John Paul II describes as the hope of every day, that that can become a real experience. And we've experienced that. I've seen you grow, Wendy. You've seen me grow. We, we have experienced God's grace working in and through our broken humanity to bring about a growth in loving one another. And that's hard work. Uh, John Paul II says that marriage puts us on a mountain climb that brings us in, I love this expression, it brings us into the neighborhood of God. And he says it's a difficult climb, it's a difficult labor to be in the neighborhood of God. But because it's difficult, should we lower the mountain? No, no, we should proclaim the grace that enables us to climb that mountain. And that's what we're trying to say here. Yes. And I'll just add that um, when I share these things about what ultimately helps us as we share that, that could seem like 
sort of far removed from everyday struggles. And I, so I just want to add to something about that, that something that is so helpful to me is learning to ask the Holy Spirit to help me in everyday situations, that tuning my thoughts into what would the Lord have to show me about this particular situation? Why is this upsetting me? Or why um, might Christopher be acting the way he is? And is this really a hard thing to forgive or is it not? And kind of not letting the evil one just have a heyday with little things to build up walls and cause us to be then unavailable for the deep graces that the Lord would otherwise be pouring into our relationship. So I just want to encourage you in that way too. Yes, you want people to give you good advice, but you also want to be tuned into our wonderful counselor, which is whom Jesus promised to us, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I'd like to add something from a book that I've been reading lately by Father Jacques Philippe. If you don't know about Father Jacques Philippe, you should. He's written lots of little books that are a great aid to the interior life. This one that I'm reading right now is called The Eight Doors of the Kingdom, and it's a meditation on the Beatitudes, and this is, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mm-hmm. And this this really resonated with me. He said, He's talking about the difficulty of forgiving those who have hurt us. And I think that's what we have here in this woman. She's mm-hmm. bitter towards men because she's been hurt by men. And and bitterness is, is understandable. Uh, the need for justice is all understandable. But in the end, the only thing that can heal us in that bitterness is forgiveness. And listen to this. I thought it was really helpful. No longer do we have grounds for holding grudges, Father Jacques Philippe says, against those who have wronged us if faith and hope testify that God will give us some greater good than the evil we have suffered. This is a basic principle. Why does it's it's one of those really difficult questions. Why does God allow evil? Or why does God allow good people to suffer? Why do we get hurt? Where was the Lord when I was hurt by so-and-so? And the Catechism says, not erasing the, the real difficulty of the question, why does God allow evil? In the end, it's a mystery, and we can't really give a satisfactory answer to it. But we do have little aids that can help us, and this is one of the fundamental truths that enables us to, despite all that we have suffered, to trust and to place our hope in God, that God would not allow any evil, the Catechism says, would not allow any evil if he were not so powerful as to bring about a greater good than would have been possible without that evil. When we really rest in that truth, this is what Father Jacques Philippe is getting at, The evil that has happened to your mother, for example, at the hands of men, the Lord would not have allowed that if he did not promise your mother that he will bring about a greater good. And we can say this for you too in wrestling with your parents' divorce. The Lord did not desire that. The Lord did not will that. The Lord did not want that to happen. But he allows this with the almighty power to bring about a greater good. St. Paul goes to the extent of saying that the glory, the good that God has for those who love him, 
enables us to look at all the sufferings of the world from the beginning of time to the end of time and to say those sufferings are as nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. And I want to say to you, my dear sister, who you've written this question, you're suffering from your parents' divorce, the Lord would not have allowed that evil in your life if he was not ready and willing to bring about a greater good, and he will. Does that mean that we should do evil because we know God's going to bring good out of it? St. Paul addresses that question, and he says that's foolishness, and your condemnation is deserved if you live and think that way. But we really can, when evil has happened, when we are suffering from evil, we can place our faith and our hope that God will bring about a greater good, and then no longer do we have grounds, as Father Jacques says, for holding grudges against those who've wronged us if faith and hope testify that God will give us some greater good than the evil we've suffered. That is awesome. Our next question is from a listener named Mary. Hi, Mary. Mary says, I have many questions. If sexual desire points to a desire for God, then what do you do with the sexual energy and tension while waiting for Jesus without falling into Gnosticism. If we ask God to be mystically married to Jesus, like the saints, will he then have to answer our request? And what does God do with the heartbreak we feel if we yearn for people we cannot be with because of the circumstances of this world? Wow. Mary, I can tell you are really pondering these things at a deep level, and I'm especially intrigued by your mention of Gnosticism. For those who may not know what Gnosticism is, I speak of it from time to time in this show. It's a heresy, it's an ancient heresy, a dualistic heresy that ruptures the body and the soul and believes that salvation comes from secret knowledge uh, that liberates us from the crudeness of matter. Uh, Gnosticism, gnosis is knowledge, and Gnosticism uh, we get the word, think of um, ignorance, right? Mm-hmm. has the same root, uh, no knowledge. Uh, Gnosticism is actually ignorant of the incarnation mm-hmm. and the meaning and purpose and beauty and glory of the incarnation. And so this is an ancient heresy that is it's really death-dealing, as all heresies are. Why? Because Gnosticism splits and ruptures the body and the soul, and that's what death is, the rupture of body and soul. So, her question about uh, law, if sexual desire points to union with God, how do we, st- how did she word it? How do we stay in that longing without what falling you, into Gnosticism? What do you do with the sexual energy and tension? That's, this, this is a great question, and I, I'm so happy to answer it. I, I remember some weeks ago I did a, a YouTube video on this, and you might want to check it out on the YouTube channel. I think it's called... Uh, how to Turn Sexual Desire into Prayer. It might have been the title or something close to that. If you put that into your YouTube search engine, you'll find where I, I give about a 12-minute or 15-minute reflection on it. But that tension itself that we feel, what do we do with it? It can become a longing for God, mm-hmm. and that's what prayer is. Pope Benedict XVI, and one of my favorite quotes from him, he says, the fathers of the church tell us, that prayer, properly understood, is nothing other than becoming a longing for God. 
why did the saints throughout the centuries, the, the saints have written commentaries on the Song of Songs. Indeed, the saints have written more commentaries on this erotic love poetry in the Bible than any other book in the Bible. Why? What did the saints and the mystics understand about the Song of Songs, this erotic love poetry, that we need to get in on? They understood that this erotic love poetry gave them a language that helped them understand their own experience of longing for God. And there's a line in the Song of Songs that I want to comment on. It's really distressing, actually, and saint after saint has commented on it in a similar way. It's the scene where the bride is in the bridal chamber. She says she has taken off her robe. She's lying in the marriage bed, and the bridegroom shows up. You're expecting the consummation, and then he goes. He leaves, and you're like, what? 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 What kind? What? Why did he leave? Why did he leave? And she gets up, she gets dressed, and she runs out into the streets of the city, begging anybody and everybody, have you seen the one I love? Have you seen the one I love? She is desperately searching for him. Have you seen the one I love? Saint after saint says that the Lord seemingly removes his presence from us, the key word seemingly, in order to increase our longing for him. <laughs> this is a painful reality, and anyone who has journeyed uh, for, uh, for some time in the, in the interior life is going to encounter these times of a seeming absence of the Lord that is intended to stretch our desire. St. Augustine, commenting on this, says, if you have a gift that you want to place in a purse, for example, but the, the purse is too small to receive the gift. Mm -hmm. He says the leather of the purse has to be stretched in order for the gift to be placed in that purse. And the analogy is that our hearts are too small mm. to receive the gift that God wants to give us. What gift does God want to give us? He wants to fill us full with all the fullness of God. That's what Scripture says. That's what St. Paul says in Ephesians 3, that our destiny is to be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, for that to happen, our hearts have to be stretched. And Mary here is speaking of this sexual tension, this sexual struggle, this, this difficulty of a longing for union that is not yet happening. What does one do? I call it staying in the ache without taking satisfaction into your own hands. Stay in the ache. Allow the ache to be stretched, and it is agonizing. But that becomes a prayer of agony, St. Teresa of Avila says, that prepares our hearts for what the saints call the prayer of ecstasy. It seems to me, Mary, that you are right in that place of allowing a, or being invited to allow this new stretching of your heart. And this is when we start to hear those very 
compelling, sweet-sounding voices that say things like, if Jesus loved you, he couldn't possibly want you to suffer this much. You come down off that cross. He'll understand. <laughs> uh, I've been there many, many, many times in that stretching of my longing where I am ready to come down off that cross of stretching. And whenever we hear that voice come down off the cross, we know whose voice it is, and our response should be, get behind me, Satan. Teresa of Avila says, this is a paraphrase, but it is essentially what she's trying to communicate, that the Lord teaches us courage in the prayer of agony, in that stretching, because we need even more courage to endure the prayer of ecstasy. The consummation is coming. The promise is given. How long, O Lord? That's a very honest prayer, and we'll find that in the Psalms over and over and over again. And I encourage you, Mary, to pray it. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will you keep me waiting? How long until you fulfill your promises? The, the ending of the Scripture, the final human words in the Bible, are the words of the bride crying out in union with the Spirit for the bridegroom to come. This is the prayer of the church, and I'm reminded of what the Catechism says here. The church longs to be united with Christ, her bridegroom, in the glory of heaven, where she will experience a rapture and happiness that will never end. That is the consummation of the marriage of the Lamb. It doesn't happen in this life. We get little tastes of it. We get little foreshadowings of it. Thanks be to God we do. But much of this life, not all of it, but much of this life is an ongoing stretching. Far from repressing our desires, far from, from uh, trying to annihilate our desires, the goal here, and this is what Christian prayer teaches us, the goal is the infinitization of desires, not the annihilation of desire, the infinitization of desire. <laughs> Lord, Lord, help us. Help us to endure the prayer of agony in hopes of the prayer of ecstasy. For the joy set before you, Lord, you endured that cross in which your own heart was thrust through with the lance. Teach us, Lord. Teach us that way. I think that's what Mary's going through. And I can feel in all that you're saying it's a call to a certain purification, yes. and we can just resist that, of course. That's natural, and and you're just calling her forward in her journey to that purification. I just want to share, too, that one of the things that will be purified as you journey with the Lord and, and open up these things to Him is that the heartbreak, as you mentioned in different relationships, one of the things that's purified is your ability to love others to whom you feel this attraction in a pure way, in a way that honors God's will for that person's life and trusts in his will for your life, that that's part of what is a beautiful fruit. And you and I have both experienced that in very real situations where yes, yes. Our, in our just our humanness, we've experienced a longing or attraction to someone that is not the Lord's will for us, and yet experiencing going through these sufferings and offering ourselves to the Lord, that he really transforms us in a way that's 
unique to our circumstances. And we have to have that openness that he would actually speak to us, that he would actually give us a vision of how we're called to love in a specific um, circumstance that corresponds to truth. And that's what we really desire. I would invite you, Mary, to place yourself with Mary, the mother of the Lord, at the foot of the cross when you are in those places of, of real tension and wondering, what do I do? To place yourself right there with Mary in her agony, in her stretching, in her remaining open to the way she was called to love, which involved this embracing of a great, great suffering. If we are called to love as Christ loves, then we know that's going to involve the cross. And it really is the, the litmus test for knowing whether a path to happiness is legitimate or not, or a counterfeit path, is does it involve the element of the cross? There's no other path to the fulfillment we desire. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Lord, I, I ask for all of our listeners and for, for Wendy and for me, I ask this grace that we would set our sights on the fulfillment of our deepest longings that you have promised, that you have promised, uh, that give us that grace, Lord, to trust in your promises. And one of my favorite Psalms, and I say it to myself often, especially when I'm in those times of stretching or when I'm in a time of temptation to take satisfaction into my own hands in a very disordered way, or maybe not even a very disordered way, maybe just a small indulgence. But whatever the temptation may be, this psalm has helped me tremendously. The psalmist simply says, I treasure your promises in my heart, lest I sin against you. I treasure your promises in my heart. What is the promise? That every desire genuine desire of my humanity will be super abundantly fulfilled. That is the promise. If we treasure that in our hearts, then we don't need to grasp at false satisfactions, and we don't need to repress our desires. We can stay with that kind of raw nerve exposed, exposed to what? To the promise. That raw nerve becomes less raw and becomes a great source of, in fact, comfort as we trust in those promises. And here I'm reminded of something that the little flower says. She says that ardent thirst itself becomes a most delightful drink. Mm. How about that? How about that? And I, I've experienced something of that, that the desire itself, when we treasure his promise in our hearts, the thirst itself becomes a delightful drink. Mm. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that promise. Amen, indeed. Well, again, as we like to encourage our listeners, if, if you've heard something today that you know someone you know needs to hear, click that share button. Help us to spread this good news of St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. And help us at the Theology of the Body Institute to expand our reach. We have a mission. We want to reach as many people around the world with John Paul II's vision, but we can't do that without your help. Also invite you to consider again becoming a member of our patron community. The link is in the show notes. 
support this mission and we will give you ongoing formation exclusive just to our patron community. Until next time, may you know deep in your bones that you are an indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gift. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.